You're listening to the Room Smart Podcast. Each podcast, we look at what's going on in each cropping region, focusing on those pesky weeds. Welcome to another episode of the Weed Smart Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We've got some topical issues that we're going to be covering this week. We're going to be focusing on seed dormancy and also later on in the podcast we're going to be looking at mixing and rotating herbicides and some of the elements of pre-emergent and post-emergent herbicides. We're going to give you some tips and tricks on that to make sure you get the most out of them this season. I am joined again by Aries and We Smart's Peter Newman. How are you, Peter? Um, very well, Jess. And you? I'm good. The seed dormancy topic that we're going to be focusing on first, it's quite a funny one because at first glance it seems a little bit tricky to get your head around, but once you start sort of humanising the issue of seed dormancy, it kind of gets a little bit fun. And you had a really great analogy that we were talking about a bit earlier, if you'd like to enlighten everyone else. Yeah, well, you can just about talk about seeds as if they have a personality and we can get a bit carried away about the psychology of seeds. But, <laughs> I mean, I, I made the analogy a couple of years ago that if you leave to go to work at the same time every day and you hit traffic at the same time every day, you might think, well, maybe I should leave a little bit earlier or a little bit later and I'll avoid that traffic. Uh, and seeds are just the same. So if they germinate at the same time every year, then they might get hit with a knockdown herbicide. And, and if they, well, we say think, but uh, they don't think, do they, seeds? But if they do happen to germinate a bit later, they could avoid that knockdown herbicide. And so, yeah, it's a little bit like the leaving for work thing. And you live in the city, Jess. Is, uh, this, does this happen to you? It does happen to me. And it's actually been something I've looked at in the last couple of days. I've got one of those oh, yeah. those fitness apps on my phone and it also measures my travel time. And it was a little bit frustrating when I looked at my trips from yesterday compared to today. And I looked at yesterday's where I left at five past eight and it took me 39 minutes to get to work. And then today I left much earlier. I left at 7.40 and I got to work at five past eight. So it took me an extra 10 minutes of travel time. And so I would have probably just been better off leaving at five past eight like yesterday because the difference of time getting to work is only 10 minutes so yeah trust yeah. you didn't know exactly how many minutes it took you to get to work pedantic aren't i yeah but you need to take a leaf out of ryegrass's book and uh, get out of sync with everyone else jess that's exactly right especially because my injury is preventing me from riding my bike so the frustration is mounting i've got to no. take the winds where i can that's right <laughs> Oh, well, look, so look, the seeds do the same thing. They think, well, they don't think. Okay. <laughs> Let's well, say they, they might. do think. They might There is think. some research into We're that like... kind of stuff, Pete. You never know in the future. Uh, I don't know about that research, Jess, <laughs> but the seeds, they know somehow that if they germinate at the same time every year, they're going to get smacked by knockdowns and pre-em herbicides. And really, they've got to work out how they don't germinate in the middle of summer when they're going to die, but they can germinate at a time that gives them the best chance of survival and that's why we're seeing a bit more dormancy in a lot of our weed seeds at the moment. It's very interesting and it's very clever of those seeds and there's plenty more anthropomorphising in the interview that we're going to be playing just in a moment. So I did get the opportunity to chat with Danica Goggin and Michelle Owens. They're both researchers at ARI and they gave us a bit more of a scientific angle on the seed dormancy, Pete. 
Yeah, they did. And then, I mean, Danica and Michelle have studied this stuff and they know it in great detail at that molecular level. And Danica tells me there was a paper only written a couple of years ago, and I think it's called Germination, Still a Mystery. So seed dormancy, very complex issue and still being understood by our scientists. Definitely. All right, well, let us take a listen. Today I'm chatting with Michelle Owen and Danica Goggin, both RE researchers and have been around quite some time, so it's really good to catch up and reflect on a bit of research that they've done. And today we'll be talking about seed dormancy, but first of all, I'd just like to say hello again. You've been on an RE podcast before, Michelle, but not Weed Smart, so first first one. <laughs> yes, yes, feeling a bit nervous. <laughs> That's all right. I'm, I'm always nervous. I just try and hide it. And Danica as well might jump in with some answers too. But first of all, I did want to know what exactly is seed dormancy? We will be talking about specifically weed seeds in a minute. But in terms of what seed dormancy is, it's a little bit of a – seems easy to understand, but maybe there's a bit more complicated – it's quite a complex matter and it's affected by um, so many conditions. We can't actually see what dormancy is, so you can only see it once the plant's actually germinated, then you know that it's not dormant anymore. Danica might like to say what seed dormancy is. I would love to hear from Danica. Well, it's an inherent condition of the seed that prevents it from germinating under ideal germination conditions. So it's kind of like the seed is asleep and it sleeps through its alarm clock in a way. I kind of thought of it as a bit of a hibernating bear. Yes. (laughs) And I guess we can all kind of look back to maybe high school biology and we look through the textbooks and we've seen kind of a picture of seeds and it's been explained in in theory probably many years ago for a lot of us. But I do wonder about the inside world of a weed seed. As your researchers, you get to spend time in the lab and you get to see these weed seeds under the microscope. Can you give us some insight into kind of what it looks like? Tiny. I don't know. I only usually see the seeds when they're first just germinating. You can just see the tiny root coming through, but on the inside, I don't. I don't spend much time myself looking at the insides of the seeds. But what about you, Danica? Well, I have excised a um, embryo or two in my time from ryegrass, and if you cut a ryegrass seed down the middle you see a big kind of white bed of starch and then a little tiny embryo up the top which eventually will become the plant because they're quite resilient weed seeds and there's obviously a lot going on inside these seeds which is a little bit which is different to many other seeds that maybe don't survive as well which is frustrating for farmers because obviously they don't want the weed seeds to survive or remain dormant in their paddocks and Michelle we were having a chat before about how there's really quite different ways that seeds for example maybe some of the native vegetation that would be in the corridors of farms and how those seeds actually germinate compared to weed seeds can you give us a little bit of a brief description of of that yes well i guess um for a lot of weed seeds ideal conditions are moisture and temperature to germinate but some of the natives may like things like fire that help to stimulate the seeds to germinate so there could be differences going on inside and outside of the paddock so let's get into the nitty-gritty of these ryegrass weed seeds and feel free to comment on any other weed seeds you've done some research on because you, ha- you both have done quite a bit of research into the seed dormancy of weed seeds. So what were some of the major findings in these studies? 
that it's a complex issue. Um, a lot of the areas that I looked at was mostly with ryegrass and looking at cropping histories and and dormancy with associated with climate over the whole of the wheat belt. So we tried to correlate growing season rainfall and other factors like the spring temperatures and rainfall during September when the seeds are actually setting and what effect that has on seed dormancy. And with such a large number, it was very hard to find correlations at the like field level. And I guess as well, year on year, conditions can be so different. And it, there's, I guess, a lot of anecdotal evidence where you'll have farmers and agronomists saying, oh, this year has been such a bad year for weeds compared to, you know, we've seen so many popping up at a certain time and that would be based on, you know, those specific conditions, wouldn't it? Yeah, like um, the growing season rainfall and the condition that the mother plants on at seed set or seed maturity can have an effect on the seed dormancy level. So if the, the seed's stressed or the plant's stressed, it affects what's happening in the seed so each year is variable and even down to the microclimate soil types and things like that can affect the moisture holding capacity and that which all can then have transferred into the seed and what it's feeling I guess it's feeling I like to think of the seed as having an actual personality (laughs) (laughs) yeah you for the researchers definitely you get attached I can imagine so how long can weed seeds actually remain dormant for then it can vary and it depends on the species. For something like ryegrass, most of the seeds are non-dormant within a year. Some of the other species, I think radish is a lot longer, so it can germinate over an, an extended number of years, depending on conditions and its initial dormancy level. Several variables. So in your surveys, you did mention a bit about your surveys before, but how many dormant weed seeds were kind of found in paddocks? Were there lots found or was it just lots of variation? There's lots of variation even within a paddock, but what we did find is that there was a strong correlation with more dormant seeds, so a greater number of seeds that could not germinate under ideal conditions associated with paddocks that had a long cropping history. So if a farmer had a long cropping with intensive herbicide usage, he's probably selecting for a more dormant or greater number of dormant seeds in their seed population. So that's pretty important to be aware of, really, because ultimately some practice change could go into place there to make sure that you're sort of not selecting for those super dormant seeds, those little hibernating seeds. <laughs> I know that's incorrect terminology, but I just, I'm just thinking, I'm imagining these cartoon seeds now just sleeping under the ground. It helps, it helps for me as a, a, non, a non-researcher to, to get the concept. So with ryegrass in particular, you found there was a higher rate of dormant weed seeds, as you said, in those higher cropping paddocks. So what are the reasons for this, though, aside from the intensive cropping and the intensive herbicide use? Is there any other? Yeah, yeah what, some of the other things we looked at then, cropping history, and we just generally found that intensive cropping histories, which is more associated with greater herbicide use, is probably wiping out the early season seeds, so those ones that are non-dormant and that do germinate at the beginning of the growing season and then it's just leaving a greater proportion of seeds that are non-dormant or that are dormant and they usually do germinate but it's later sort of July or August in the cropping year so they're coming up at a time when it's too late to practice weed control measures without affecting the crop. So what are some practical alterations that farmers can make then to their cropping practices in terms of mitigating dormant weed seeds in paddocks is there anything that they can do? 
I guess they could, at the beginning of the season, they either keep the it out of crop or make those paddocks their, what they crop later so that they can allow for a greater flush of germination in April, May, June months. We could use chemical fallow or green manuring or anything that really stops seed set and can allow these populations to germinate but um, stop them setting seed and replenishing the seed bank. Yeah, it's interesting because it's seed dormancy. It's not something you hear a lot about, but there is definitely, as you say, some some practical decisions people can make and hopefully mitigate those dormant weed seeds in the paddocks and, and make sure that they're not impacting their crops as much. Is there anything else that is really relevant to this topic you think farmers would really benefit from knowing about or even agronomists or even just anyone because it's quite interesting see dormancy sort of relating back to the other question is that also they could do any measure that sort of prevents them from germinating so like deep burial the seeds can germinate but they won't be able to get through to the surface so they'll so. die <laughs> they'll die before they even get to see <laughs> daylight or other stimulants like this chemical means such as yeah that can create a germination flush early on that then they can um, be killed off with herbicide before the cropping program. Mm. So if a seed is quite deep then, can it still germinate but then it's just sort of, it's seed, what's it called, the seed head or what's it called, what's the word for it? Coleoptile. <laughs> is that, so that's kind of racing towards the uh, soil surface but then it just never reaches, never breaks through, is that what kind of happens? Yeah, if it's below like a certain depth It'll try and push up, but then it will probably use all its seed sources energy to get there, and then it's got nothing left. So if it doesn't, like a lot of seeds, if they don't have any sunlight, then they don't have any green, so they eventually die because they're not able to photosynthesize. Runs out of steam, which is good, but it just sounds sad. (laughs) Is there anything else from you, Danica, after hearing us have a chat uh, that you'd like to add about weed seed dormancy that we might have missed? Not from a practical viewpoint, no, there's... What about any lab, any lab-related stuff, maybe some technical stuff we might have missed that might be interesting for people to know? Well, there's just different chemicals can make the seeds do different things very nicely in the petri dish, but when you try to move them out to the field, it doesn't work so well. So we keep trying. So there's quite a lot of research still going on to that area, is there? Not at the moment in Ari because of funding vagaries, but I think at Kings Park we're still looking at native seeds as well as those. All right, we'll have to keep our eyes on this space. Well, thank you so much, Danica and Rochelle, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Great hearing from Danica and Michelle there, and as I promised, many analogies to do with weed seeds. Take your pick for whichever suits you best. But uh, I, I like the hibernating bear. Jeff. Yeah, the hibernating bear is a good one, and you can just really you could write a storybook. I can imagine Pete, you and I, just writing a storybook around sea dormancy. Well, you know, start young, get the education started young with some. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a riveting book, Jess. I know, I know, but it is really interesting in terms of. Farmers looking at seed dormancy, obviously it's really important. And there are some differences between whether you get a wet spring and a dry spring. Can you give us a little bit of insight? Because we did have a soft finish last season and there were, lots of people did experience a wet spring. So what's the impact of that on dormancy? Yeah, well, 
there is this thing, and my understanding is if you get that soft spring where you get cool, moist conditions and they're good for grain fill of the crop and they're good for grain fill of your weed seeds, then those seeds go on to then be a bit more dormant. And so a lot of Australian farmers, as you've said, have had quite a soft spring, not everyone, but a lot of farmers have had a a soft spring and and so that could mean that going into this season that our weed seeds are just that bit more dormant than normal and could be even slightly later emerging in our crops than they normally are. We didn't get into the nitty-gritty of some of the research Michelle did on seed dormancy, Pete, but she has done some really interesting work on dormancy and resistance. Can you give a little bit of an overview of what that research was centred around? Yeah, well, with her uh, recent survey, I think it was the 2010 survey, where she was testing, you know, lots of WA fields for herbicide resistance in a random resistance survey, she also looked at what level of dormancy was out there and found a strong link between dormancy and resistance. So the more resistant a plant or a population of ryegrass was, the more dormant it was. So it was later emerging each year. Now, it's interesting... And we believe that resistance doesn't cause the dormancy, but if you have high levels of herbicide resistance, it's likely you've come from an intensive cropping system, and intensive cropping systems are predictable where people seed at about the same time every year, and therefore the plants had also adapted to be more dormant to avoid those knockdown and pre-em herbicides and germinate in the crop. So resistance doesn't cause dormancy, but Michelle found that they were certainly linked. And so what practice changes then does that mean for farmers? Does it just mean always mixing it up? Oh, it does, Jess. It's, it's a real can of worms. So the first instinct might be, right, we've got to really delay sowing to delay as late as we can so we can get some of these dormant ones to germinate and knock them down. However, we might have to delay a really long time and then that's going to cost us a lot of yield in a lot of instances. So the alternative is, and I think this is where we're heading at the moment, is to sow even earlier and sow a really competitive crop early. So if we sow earlier than normal, we can get our crop out of the ground a few weeks before the weeds emerge. And when they do emerge, the weeds are faced with a big competitive crop and there's a robust pre-emergent herbicide with that crop. So perhaps early sowing with a competitive crop and good pre-em herbicides is the way to go. That is really good advice. And we're actually going to move into chatting a bit more about that very topic now. Pete, mixing and rotating herbicides, that's the next subject of the podcast we're going to focus on. So why do pre-emergent herbicides evolve resistance slower than post-emergent herbicides? Well, that's an interesting one. Gail Somerville has just done her PhD at ARI, has done a lot of computer modelling on that. And it's it's an interesting one. So why do pre-ems take longer to evolve resistance than our post-em herbicides? So why did trifluralin take so long to evolve high levels of resistance compared to a post-emergent herbicide like hoegrass or, or diclofop as it's called? So it could be a bit about the gene frequency and that's also true but what Gail's modelling shows is that a big part of it is that let's think of a herbicide like trifluralin. It's a pre-em, it's soil residual and it lasts several weeks in the soil. 
and then it wears off and it doesn't kill any more weeds. So that is only exposed to uh, a certain cohort of weeds. So we have weeds emerging cohorts, so we'll get a cohort before seeding, we'll get a cohort just after seeding, maybe a cohort a bit later and then maybe a fourth cohort really late. So trifluralin might only be exposed to say that second cohort, which is a smallish number of weeds in the whole weed seed bank. Whereas a post-emergent herbicide like hoegrass is applied later and is applied to several cohorts of weeds. So essentially hoegrass is exposed to a lot more numbers of weeds than trifluralin is. Sorry, that's a long-winded way of saying that. It's quite hard to explain. But it's all about numbers. And so our post-emergent herbicides being applied late are exposed to big numbers of weeds. Pete, with our pre-emergent herbicides, we've got some that live longer than others in the soil. What are the implications around this? That's another good point in all of this. So if we think of something like trifluralin compared to, say, Sakura, trifluralin lasts a few weeks and, and Sakura lasts quite a bit longer in the soil. So what does that mean? Well, it means that Sakura is exposed to more cohorts of weeds. So Sakura is exposed to a greater number of weeds and so perhaps the risk of Sakura is greater than the risk of trifluralin resistance. So it's all about numbers. So the longer a herbicide persists in the soil, the more weeds it's exposed to, the greater the selection pressure for resistance. Yeah, right. It was really interesting. I got to watch Gail's exit seminar uh, for her PhD, which was on this particular research. And it was really interesting looking at her slides and it really emphasised the fact that post-emergent actually are looking after the pre-emergent herbicides. Can you give us a little bit more detail on that, Pete? Yeah, well, that's another factor. That's another part of this whole story. So where we have a post-emergent herbicide working, it's like a, a second knock, isn't it? So say we've put down a pre-em like trifluralin and then we've got good old hoegrass still working. That hoegrass is like a second knock and they're the herbicides that Gail used in her computer modelling. And so while hoegrass is working, we don't really select for trifluralin resistance because we might have this trifluralin resistant weed come up, emerge, it's growing along in the crop and then the farmer sprays with hoegrass and it dies and so those weeds never get to set seed and those resistance genes don't proliferate but once hoegrass resistance starts to happen then the resistance to trifluralin can piggyback off that because hoegrass is no longer the effective second knock then we can get those resistance genes to our preems start to proliferate so the the preem resistance sort of piggybacks off the postem resistance now gail looked at trifluralin and hoegrass they're old herbicides but we could you know substitute that for trifluralin and say roundup in a roundup ready crop or it could be propizamide pre-canola followed by uh, clethodim post-emergent so we still have this going on so where we have effective post-ems we don't really get that pre-em resistant building up. Pete, mixing and rotating, we, we've discussed this quite a bit lately, but it is relatively new, only being promoted in the last year or so. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, mixing pre-emergent herbicides? Yeah, well, we've talked a lot about this recently, Jess, and, yeah, as we've said in the past, we talked a lot about rotation. So if you use a product this year, don't use it next year sort of thing. And now our message, rotation is still a good idea, but our message is very strongly that mix and rotate is even better. So, uh, in the words 
with the patronal, uh, rotating buys your time but mixing buys your shots. So where we mix herbicides together at full rates, we can buy extra shots of herbicides. So we really are firmly in that mix and rotate camp now and, and what we're talking about is can we mix two pre-emergent herbicides together uh, and use them together or the other sort of mix that we can use, even though it's not a tank mix, it might be like we've just been talking about, where we use an effective pre-emergent herbicide followed by an effective post-emergent herbicide. So yeah, mix and rotate has, has really become a strong message because it's like a double knock for, for the weeds. Very good advice there. Pete, that's really interesting, but this tactic isn't perfect, is it? Because pre-em herbicides have different longevity in the soil, don't they? That's right, yeah. Nothing is perfect in weed management, unfortunately. <laughs> nothing is perfect in, in life, I guess. But, but yeah, our pre-ems, if, let's say if we're mixing a trifluralin and a Sakura, for example, in the same tank mix pre-wheat, for example, uh, we know that that trifluralin will last a few weeks, but the Sakura will last much longer than that in the soil. So we have weeds that are really, that germinate just after crop emergence that are really exposed to both herbicides. And then we have weeds that germinate later that really might only be exposed to Sakura. And we also know that as these herbicides wear off in the soil, the dose of them effectively wears off. They sort of degrade slowly through time. So the later germinating weeds are exposed to a lower dose of perhaps one of the herbicides in the mix. So it's not perfect, the mix and rotate, because two reasons there. One is different pre-em herbicides last different amount of time in the soil, and also that our, as our herbicides degrade, the weeds are exposed to a low dose, which we know is a bad thing. So it's not perfect, but still it is a good idea to mix and rotate our herbicides wherever possible. Very good advice, and timely advice, I think. So hopefully the information that we've shared in this podcast is of assistance to the agros and farmers out there. That's always the intention, isn't it, Pete? <laughs> That's the idea, yeah. We can't get things perfect, but we're just trying to share the latest science and and uh, help the agronomists and farmers make those complex decisions that they make every day. And, and look, one of those might be they might say, look, I used trifluralin last year. Should I use it in this mix with trifluralin and Sakura or trifluralin box of gold or whatever it is this year? And the answer for me is yes, you, you should use it in those mixes, even if it means that you're using trifluralin or a bit more regularly than you think is uh, is a good idea. Keep mixing and rotating. For sure. Well, that just about sums it up for this week, but we will be joining you in another fortnight, so make sure you stay tuned. Thanks for joining me and answering those questions, Pete. Very good. Thanks, Jess. I hope it came across all right. They're quite confusing issues, these ones, but, yeah, quite a quite a big body of work has gone into, into all of that, and, uh, yeah, we are hopefully making a good fist of our of our agronomic decisions as a result of it. That's right. Well, we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you.